0: Ephesians 6, and we're starting to read at verse 10. But let's pray together. And as I've invited you each evening, it's wonderful to know the Lord's presence and to sense him moving in the midst. And we ought not to take that for granted, really. And let's just come to the Lord now and ask him to meet with us in a special way that the intensity of his presence that we've been experiencing these nights would grow greater and more dense in the midst this evening. We will know that we've met with the Lord in a very real way. Uh, And I want you to personally ask the Lord to speak to you. Would you do that? I've been inviting folk to do that and he has been meeting us and he has been working in our lives. But let's again, afresh, say, Lord, would you speak to me tonight? Let us all pray. Oh, we come to you Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we come to you, the holy and victorious Trinity, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we worship you with the cherubim and the seraphim, with the angelic hosts, and with the blood-bought throng around the glassy sea. O oh, mighty God, we give you praise in and through the name of our glorious Saviour and our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We tonight lift up and extol his name and we invoke everything that that name encapsulates. O God, we pray that all the merits of his name and his work would accrue to us tonight and this will be a veritable Bethel, where the angels of God would ascend and descend upon the Son of Man, that there would be a portal, as it were, above us, and this would be a gate of heaven. Lord, we hunger, our souls thirst after you, the living God, tonight. And We pray that you'll come and manifest your presence in our midst. We thank you that you are a God of grace and love, and you long to transform and change our lives. You long to renew our hearts. You long to reveal yourself to us in a deeper, more intimate way. Lord, move out all the blockages. Demolish all the mountains that would appear to be insurmountable in our lives. Whatever it is that is hindering us, whatever barriers of blessing we might have. Lord, tonight, by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, we pray to you that you will make a way, a highway, for the Lord. So, Lord, we wait upon you now. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, uh, if you haven't been with us so far, or if you have for that matter, you'll know that on Sunday evening we started with just the emphasis that was necessary that we need to be aware and alert to the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. And I'll not repeat myself, but we we need to be sober and vigilant to the fact that once you trust Christ, you change kingdoms. And effectively, because your Lord is now Christ and you're in the kingdom of light, everything else that exists in the universe that is not in the kingdom of God is going against you, and therefore you are going against the flow. And it's then that you really become a target in the sights of the enemy. And so we must debunk this myth that when you get saved and filled with the Spirit and you seek to go on with God, that all of a sudden the devil loses interest in you. On the contrary, you become of prime interest to him, especially if you want to be on fire for the Lord and his cause and blaze a trail for Jesus. And then uh, Monday evening we began to look at these individual pieces of armor. We looked on Monday night at the belt of truth. The necessity of transparency and candor in the Christian life, to walk in the light, to be truthful with God, ourselves, and with others. And the the truth is, of course, not some kind of abstract dogma. This is the, the, the error that we often fall into, particularly in evangelicalism. But the truth is a person, Jesus. I am the truth. And it is through an intimate relationship with him that we actually enter into a knowledge experientially of what it is to know the truth and to walk in truth. Then we looked at the breastplate of righteousness on Monday evening as well, uh, how the enemy would seek to penetrate our emotional life, our heart. And often he does that through accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to condemn us, but we must choose to cover ourselves with the righteousness of Jesus. We've got nothing of ourselves to offer to God, the holy God of heaven. But when we plead the righteousness of Jesus, we can go to the enemy and say, yes, well, I may be guilty as charged in that respect. I may have done that thing. But I am not covered by my righteousness. I am covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? His only righteousness, I know. His saving truth, proclaimed. And then last night, well... I'm trying to remember myself. Uh, The shoes, that's what it was, wasn't it? The shoes of the gospel of peace. How the enemy wants to rob us of the peace of God, which is beyond understanding. And we'll we'll not repeat ourselves. And we may be touching some things uh, in that regard tonight. But we're looking this evening at the shield of faith. So let's read this portion together again from verse 10. I hope it's sinking in. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I emphasized to you last evening a point that I hadn't made before in this week, and that is that these pieces of armor are essentially life conditions that God the Holy Spirit wants to engender in our everyday experience. We pointed out that, yes, we need the armor for the evil day when we face a particular spiritual crisis or challenge, but we need to be adorned in this armor every day, for none of us know when the evil day is going to come. And so for that eventuality that crops up every now and again when we're attacked or we're tempted, it's too late to start putting on these pieces then. These pieces of armor, rather, are lifestyle traits and characteristics that we as Christians ought to be putting on on a daily basis. And There's so much in Scripture about putting off the old man putting off the works of the flesh and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's simply what the armor is. It's putting on everything that Jesus is and has been given to us in grace. And so tonight we're going to look at the shield of faith. And there's an interesting phrase here uh, in, in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can mean a number of things. First, it could mean that uh, you can have all the other pieces of armor on, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the, the, the sword, and the shoes, but essentially n- no armor is worth anything without a shield. The shield, if you like, is the, the first line of defense. It's good to have those other pieces of armor on if, if you're not able to deflect a fiery dart or, or a blade with the shield. You've got this extra layer of protection. But essentially, the shield is the primary field of defense. And so, in that sense, Paul says, above all, and it is, of course, logistically covering all the other parts of the armor, and indeed, the whole body. It was literally put above all things. And it is there in order to deflect all the onslaughts of the enemy. Look at the end of the verse. With which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now this is a very powerful weapon in our hands, even though it is defensive rather than offensive. It meets all the onslaughts of the wicked one. This is our shield. Now, what kind of a shield is this shield of faith? Well, from uh, children's Bible books and maybe even from films or encyclopedias, you may have a concept of this being a round shield that is called a buckler in the Bible, like a button shield. That is not the shield that Paul has in mind here, I believe. It is rather literally a door shield. It's an oblong shield of about two and a half foot by four foot, which a heavily, a heavily armoured warrior would carry. <laughs> There's some weight in this shield in and of itself. And this shield, well, it was made up probably of two laminated pieces of wood, two layers of wood that were glued together. And then these two layers would be covered over in linen, and then a tough leather hide would be applied. And it would be bound uh, at each corner by iron uh, sort of ornaments, and even on the front. And the soldier would actually saturate this shield. The leather would soak up water. So that when a fiery dart was fired at the soldier, it would immediately be extinguished as it penetrated the shield. It's quite remarkable. History records that after the siege. Of Drachium, Sceva, the warrior, counted no less than 220 darts in his one shield. Incredible, isn't it? What a shield this is. And it needs to be because fiery darts, it's not poetic license used by the Apostle Paul or exaggeration. This is literally what would be leveled at you. You see, the enemy would take these arrows, these short darts at times, dip them in tar and pitch, and light them and fire them at you. And if one of them got past the the, the shield and and hit you, you would go up in flames. This shield is the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. One translation puts it like this, the missiles of the evil one. If you were here last night, I talked about the fact that Satan has been studying human nature for at least 6,000 years and maybe more and he knows us well. And though there might be uniqueness in each of us, there are general personality traits, and certainly even in cultures uh, and among different colors, there are certain traits and certain weaknesses that, that we might have in our own nature or in our own culture and society. And Satan has been studying us to know what buttons to press. Equally, when it comes to his fiery darts, He knows the exact point of weakness that we are vulnerable in. And indeed, he knows where we are most flammable. Where he can most probably set us on fire. And so what I'm really saying is we are flammable. Now, there's thousands of ways to be set aflame by the enemy, but there are some that are peculiar to you. You understand what I'm saying? And we've got to be real with each other, and sometimes I feel that there's, there's not an awful lot of honesty that comes from the pulpit or even is shared in the pew about the struggles that we actually have. And I want to be as honest as I can tonight to say to you, I struggle. I know temptation. I know a spiritual battle. and I know that it heats up at times, and it appears to me that when you have the mountaintop experiences in the realm of the Spirit, that the valley comes very quickly. And it's so easy to allow the enemy to rob you of your victory. And certainly the more you seek to go on with God and know God in a deep and intimate way, the more you are a threat to the enemy, the more he will look for your downfall. And listen, he's not going to exploit your strength. It's going to be your weakness. And you need to know them. You need to know your Achilles heel. I'm going to say something from the pulpit just now that you mightn't have heard much uh, from pulpits. Sin is exceedingly pleasurable. Did you know that? The Bible actually says the pleasures of sin in the book of Hebrews. Now, it does say the pleasures of sin last for a season, but it uses the phrase the pleasures of sin. And let's be real. Would sin be such a big problem for me if it wasn't pleasurable? Would temptation be tempting if it wasn't pleasurable? Now we know if we're saved long enough the problem. That it is that initial tantalization. That magnetic impact that draws us. And then the serpent gets his bite in. And extracts venom into our system. And and we know that death then is born from the temptation and the sin. But initially, we've got to be real. Sin is pleasurable. Temptation is real. It is a problem. And you've got to appreciate your own weak areas, your own vulnerabilities. If you're ever going to put this shield up, you're going to have to understand your weak areas that are most exposed to the enemy's attack. Now, do you know that? Do you? Turn with me to James chapter 1 for a moment, for he uh, has a lot to say on the issue of temptation, particularly in chapter 1. Book of Hebrews and then James chapter 1. This is an intriguing verse. It's very hard to put this one into practice, I find. (laughs) Blessed is the man, verse 12, or happy is the man who endures temptation. I generally don't feel terribly happy. When I'm in temptation, I have to say, that's something I need to work on. You see, this is an opportunity to have victory and grow stronger. You know the way in the gym you do resistance training and you take a weight a little bit heavier the next time to grow stronger. Well, temptation can be used of God in order that that happens. We grow stronger so the next time we can resist even better. So we need to count it a blessing for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now understand this. God can allow you to go into temptation, to be tested, to be tried, in order to see what's in your heart, and in order that you might become stronger to the enemy's devices. But God himself is not the one who dangles the carrot in front of our nose. God never tempts us with evil. That is, the enemy and all his demons do that. You've got to differentiate here. It's important. But here's what happens. The process or the psychology of sin, we might say, in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You see, it's not right to say, the devil made me do it. Now, I know, and we've seen these nights, that the devil is very strong, and he's got a network of demonic influence whose job it is, it seems, to to come along and tempt us and bring uh, certain influences to bear on us, to make things very hard. But we still have residing within us, I believe, a free will to make a choice. And the enemy and the world and the flesh can make it very difficult. And yet there is something in all of us that if there is that magnetism of temptation, there is this old fallen nature that is still in us, even as Christians that has this contact with that magnetic pull of temptation. James says, Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, in other words, when you say yes to that passion within, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, we've got a responsibility when it comes to sin. It's not enough to say, oh, my childhood was to blame. Now, yes, we've seen that our childhoods have an awful lot to do with how we're set up to be vulnerable to certain practices in our life. There's no doubt about that. But it's not enough to point the finger at our childhood At our parents, though they may well be guilty in ways of not covering us, not protecting us, and not pointing us to God, our Father in heaven, and yet we've got to own our own responsibility to the fact that we're sinners. And we like sin. But we've also got to be real to the fact that the sin that tempts you may not be the sin that tempts me. And you shouldn't condemn me for my sin temptation, and I shouldn't condemn you. Let me illustrate this to you, to help you. You're walking along the road one day, or the corridor and work, or something like that. And as you're walking along, all of a sudden you spy this sight, glorious sight. A big, fat wallet. Full of crisp, newly printed notes. 20 pound notes. Full of them, packed full of them. And credit cards as well. Hmm. Now. What do you do? Now there's some of you good moral folk here in the building would say there's no question what I would do. I would just lift up that wallet, I would take it into the office or I would if it was out in the street I would hand it into a local police station. There's no question of what I would do. I might think about something just momentarily. Oh, that's a lot of money. But I would do the right thing. There wouldn't be a question. I wouldn't be really strongly tempted to do anything other than the right thing. All right? But there are some people who are going through financial straits for whom the credit crunch has really been harsh and who have bills galore to pay and they don't know where the money's coming from. And they would be tempted to just take that wallet. And it's amazing how our brains can work at times, even as Christians. You might laugh at what I'm about to say, but there are some who might think, well, I've been praying. I have been praying, Lord. Yes, I've been praying that you would provide my need and that you would do something to to, to help me, Lord. And what's the chances of this happening? And I mean, this person's obviously lost it and maybe they don't miss it. And, And here I am. Lord, is this of you? Now, that might not be in any shape or form how you might think. But some people would be tempted to lift that wallet and take it home and say nothing. Some Christians would. But that's not you, sure it is. What about you're out walking the dog one night and you're in the middle of the countryside and there's no one about, hardly a car in sight, and as you're walking along, you nearly fall over a sack. And when you open that sack, it's filled with pornographic magazines. What do you do Some people, instinctively, will just lift that sack and will throw it over the hedge or throw it down a well and destroy it. But some will be tempted, nobody's around, to take a peek. Now, that mightn't be your temptation. The pornography mightn't be your temptation. The wallet mightn't be your temptation. But what I'm trying to illustrate is you might look down your nose at the boy that'll have a wee peek at pornography. But you might be the one that was tempted with money. Or vice versa. But we've got to stop looking out at others. At what their temptations are. And look to ourselves to understand where our own weaknesses are. And be aware of Satan's devices. Now here's a, another little tip for you. And it's, it's been priceless for me. Part of the problem that we have when it comes to temptation, when we know our own weakness is, we tend to concentrate on our temptation. Understand, it's a bit like the thought life that I was talking about the other evening. We tend to home in and wrestle with negative thoughts when what we ought not to do is wrestle with them, we, we replace them with the truth. Lies replaced with truth. Now, another illustration. If I'm trying to lose weight with jam at the moment, not doing a very good job of it, but if they're having chocolate eclairs after the dinner tonight, and my wife has one, and my, my daughter and son have one, and I'm trying my best, the worst thing that I could possibly do is just sit and stare <laughs> the chocolatey clear. Wouldn't that be the worst thing? Huh? Because it's not going to be there very, very long, I can assure you. You see, that's what we often do with sin. That's what we often do in our minds with negative thoughts or harmful, sinful thoughts. We try to wrestle with them or our temptation. We're conscious and thinking about how we'll wrestle. Listen, Listen to what this passage says in verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We've got to stop wrestling with the temptation and understand that there is a tempter behind this. There is a malevolent personality who we said the other evening hates us, detests us, and wants our downfall. And he knows the very buttons to press in our life. And we've got to be awake to the fact that he is feeding us this stuff. And stop focusing on the temptation and understand that there's a tempter that's looking for our downfall. That will help us. It will help us in our weak areas. And of course, there are thousands of ways that we can be set on fire. Thousands of ways. These darts are incendiary devices. James further talks about later on in his book how the tongue uh, is a a fire set on fire. A flame by hell. It's incredible, isn't it? What is easily set on fire in you? Now, be honest. Is it sexual temptation and lust? And listen, I know that some might feel it's inappropriate to talk about these things from the pulpit, but I'm sorry. You need to waken up and live in the real world. Now, I know there's a decency and a dignity that has to be from the pulpit. But you see, the day and age in which we're living, our children and our young people need to know what God says in his word about marriage, about sexuality, because they're hearing the opposite everywhere. And if we don't tell them, the government will tell them. The media will tell them. The playground will tell them. And then they will wake up one day in a moral car wreck and wonder why we didn't tell them. We need to own sexuality again as a created ideal of God before the fall. God invented sex. God had the first sex thought. God ordained it in marriage between a man and woman, one man and one woman, and we need to tell people the truth of the holiness of the marriage bed, which is undefiled. But maybe there's so much shame in our own life from the way sex has been in our past, that the devil has an advantage over us. And we're drowning in guilt and shame tonight. Maybe your weakness is. And of course, there is the utter mass proliferation of pornography. And this is at epidemic proportions in the church of Jesus Christ but very few people want to talk about it. And it's time we got real. Now, some of you tonight I know don't don't even know how to turn the thing on, the the, the computer. You don't, huh? You're still struggling with the microwave and all, aren't you? (laughs) Huh? But you know, our children, boys, I'm telling you, they can work those things inside out. And I would beg you tonight, I would beg you, don't you put a computer in your child's room without protection. Don't dare do that. You know why I'm telling you that? Because I know what I would have done. And would still do if I didn't have boundaries in place and I wasn't relying on the grace of God and seeking His face day by day. We need to understand our weaknesses. Maybe that's not... Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's business life. Maybe it's ethics. Where you're just, you know ducking and diving a wee bit? Being a bit economic with the figures when you're filling in the forms? Huh? What's your weakness tonight? Is it worry that we talked about last evening? Is it fear and anxiety? Is it jealousy? Is it gossip and slander? Is it this tongue set afire from hell? Or is it covetousness, that you're never content with what you have, you're always looking what somebody else has got? Or maybe it's the mind, those accusing, condemning insinuations that the enemy brings to you, and maybe latching on to things that people in your past have said. Maybe it's blasphemous thoughts. You know, there are people and they're wrecked, wrecked with blasphemous thoughts. Even in their holiest moments, even tonight in this building, as you were singing, holy, 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 there have been the most perverse thoughts that have been fired into your mind. And here's how the devil works. And I know our heart is deceitful. And Jesus said, out of the heart comes fornications and immoralities and all sorts of wickedness. But you see, if you're in Christ, God has given you a new heart. I'm not saying all the old disappears, but what I am saying is, everything that comes into our minds is not from our heart. And the the devil often does a number on us by saying, what an awful person you are to have thought such a thing. Now, I'm not talking about things that James is saying comes from our inner nature. Things that we are naturally drawn to, even sinfully. I'm talking about things that you don't want to think about, you would never dream of. And they all of a sudden shoot into your mind and your consciousness. Do you know where that comes from? The enemy. But the enemy wants you as a child of God to say, Oh no! Oh, I'm an awful person. I'm wicked. There's something wrong with me. I'm warped. I'm perverse. And he wants to condemn you to make you think it's you. And that's often how he works in our minds, even in the holiest moments. And there's deliverance for that. There's freedom for it. Maybe it's doubts about God's Word or other burning desires. I don't know what your flammable area might be. But wait, I tell you something. When he fires that dart, if you don't extinguish it immediately by faith, that's when it appears to become uncontrollable. I've said we've got a choice in what we think about and what we believe we've got free will. But you might say tonight, well, why is everything spiraling out of control? Why does it seem that I I can't get a hold on these things now? Why? Because you let the dart get in and it's got to such a flame that it appears to be engulfing you and consuming you. Praise God, there's help. But we've got to understand thee. Not be ignorant of his devices and his schemes and how he works and as far as is possible. When those fiery darts come, extinguish them immediately. This is not what I used to do. Here's what I used to do. When those wicked thoughts came into my mind, when they did, and they didn't come from my heart, when they came into my mind, even in holy moments, I started to think, oh, you're awful. I started to introspect. I started to dissect. I started to say to myself, what are you? What are you? That you can think I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. I stop. And I don't wrestle with them either. I command the enemy. I submit myself to God and I command the enemy to flee from me and I put truth into my head. I don't even think about that thing for a moment. I don't dissect it. I don't ruminate about it. I don't turn it over like you do that wee tip bit of the back tooth you know, after your Sunday dinner. You go over and over and over and taste it and think about it. I don't analyze it. I don't question it. I don't question myself. I give it to God and I plead the blood and I replace it with truth. That's what you need to do. For if you let it in, it will go under your skin. And I'll tell you, if you let the devil into your mind, he'll take your head off. You must learn to use faith to protect your spirit, your soul, and your body, your whole person. Now let's talk in the time it remains about what is this shield of faith. And first of all, we need to analyze what faith is. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, please, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I've already spoken to you about how all this armor does not come to us by default through the death of Jesus. It is ours by grace, but you keep reading this active language in Ephesians 6. Take each piece of the armor. We have to appropriate it. As in every facet of Christianity given to us by grace, we appropriate it by faith. And this terminology is wonderful. Christianity is from faith to faith. As someone put it, it is a faith exercise from beginning to end. The just shall live by faith, verse 17. Now, that is a direct quotation from Hallowcock, chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. It's what Martin Luther rediscovered during the Reformation, to realize it's not by the works of the law that anyone is justified, but by grace through faith in Jesus. By faith we are justified with God and have peace. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Here in Romans chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 3, and in Hebrews chapter 11. On each occasion, the emphasis is different. The book of Romans is about how we can, well, among many other themes, it's about how we can be right with God. How we can be just and righteous in God's eyes. And here we have at the very beginning this emphasis. The just, that's the emphasis. This is how to be right with God. By faith. The just shall live by faith. In the book of Galatians, there was a controversy among those who had been born again. They'd begun this journey of faith in the Spirit, but they were trying to be made perfect by the flesh. And these Judaizers had come in and said, you need to obey the laws of Moses and be circumcised and keep the rites and rituals of Judaism. And Paul had to come and say, no, you start in the Spirit, and you continue in the Spirit, and you finish in the Spirit. You can't be made perfect by the works of the flesh or the works of the law. And so he emphasized again this verse, what? The just shall live. Hi, Live by works? No. Live by religious ordinances? No. Live by faith. That's how we live. The last reference is in Hebrews 11, where I want you to turn quickly. Hebrews 11. And look at verse 38 of Hebrews 10. Here's the verse, Hebrews 10 actually, but we're going to read Hebrews 11 as well. Now, the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, the author is quoting again Habakkuk 2.4, and we see that chapter 11 is this great passage on faith and the great heroes of faith, male and female, in the history of God's people. And the emphasis here is the just shall live by what? Faith. Faith is the instrument of this life in Christ. And then there's this great excursus on faith, verse 1 of chapter 11. You want to know what faith is in this shield? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, that is nonsensical from a logical perspective. In a sense... Not completely, because there are things that we don't see, but we see evidence of. Uh, I can't see anybody's brain here tonight. But I'm assuming you've got one. huh? Because there's certain sensory perception, there's movement, all witnessing something none of us can see. You've never seen your own, have you? Hmm? Something for you worry about tonight. You've never seen your own brain. The wind is another thing. You see how it moves. Jesus said that. The wind comes and goes. We perceive the effects. Even, I mean, think of this technological age in which we live. At this very moment, there are radio waves and all sorts of other waves. I don't know what they are. Passing constantly through the atmosphere. We can't see any of them. But we get the texts. We get the signals. We get the calls. We get the emails. You'd love to see it all. Really freak you out to see what's going on in the heavenly realm. So we've got to debunk this idea, which is a materialist concept, that seeing is believing. That is not the faith of the Bible. Faith, but goes further, it is the evidence of things not seen. Let me read it to you uh, in the Amplified Version. Faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the convictions of the reality, faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Faith is like the sixth sense of the child of God. Faith is described, the amplified, as the title deed. What does that to say? It says you own a thing, even if you're not possessing it at that moment. You've got the title deed, you're the rightful owner. But more than that, faith actually is the proof, the proof, Some people will come with pastoral dilemmas and say, look, I've been praying about this thing for years and nothing's ever changed. Where is the guarantee, God? I mean, I know I've been told and taught God answers prayer, but I'm praying and I'm believing. Listen to what, if you believe, faith is the proof. That's what verse 1 says, the proof. If God has given you a gift of faith to believe that it's going to happen and and that gift of faith usually comes through the word of God, a promise. A promise. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When God speaks, it doesn't say faith comes by reading. It says faith comes by hearing. When we're imparted a gift where we hear God saying to us through the Word, or maybe another means that He has ordained, He's given us an assurance. That is the proof. That's the proof. That that thing that you don't yet see is going to happen. Isn't that wonderful? the handle on the unseen, the title deed to your possessions, even if you don't seem to have entered them yet. I have to say to you tonight, and I don't want to be controversial, but I believe that a great deal of bad theology has weakened our faith in God. We've actually set people up to not expect God to do things that we believe him for. And I think that is an indictment against the church of Jesus Christ. We have divested some of the greatest statements of our Lord Jesus Christ because, and this is often the reason, and and there's a, 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 a method to my madness in going down this road. It is fear that robs us of fear. Fear. And often our theologies are motivated by fear what will they think if i believe god for that if i go and pray for this person's deliverance or their wholeness what is what are the and what if i feel what if i feel it's not about you it's got nothing to do with you it's about god it's god's promises it's god's prerogative to do a thing i'm not talking about harebrained nonsense and telling people to give up their medicine and god's heal them and all this I believe the power of God is the same today as it ever was. And we need to get back to a faith in God's power, whatever our theology. And we need to beware of anything, even if it's doctrinal, that engenders fear in us, that robs us of faith and belief in the promises of God. Here's why. Because expectancy draws God. Expectancy. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11. But without faith it is impossible to please him. Impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Expectancy draws God. Now if you tell people, and again I'm trying my best here, okay, not to thump on your toes, But if you tell people the power of God died when the apostles died, what do you think that's going to do to their faith? Huh? I'll leave that one with you. What is this shield? Shield of faith. But more, I I want to move on. It's not just the promises of God and claiming them by faith. It's not just the proof of something imparted to us by a word from God. Listen, it's... As far as I'm aware, the only mention of a shield in the New Testament is here in Ephesians 6. But from the Old Testament, we get great understanding. The first mention of a shield is regarding Abraham at the close of a struggle against the unbelieving kings who attacked the king of Sodom and his allies. And in Genesis 15, verse 1, you don't need to turn to it, just listen. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield and exceeding great reward. The first mention of a shield here, God is the shield. God is the shield. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, we'll see probably on Friday night that every piece of this armor corresponds to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every piece. And if you look in the book of Isaiah, you will see a prophetic picture of God himself, Jehovah, wearing armor. This is the armor of the Lord. But this is the Lord himself, as I said earlier. We are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. God is your shield. That excites me tonight. God is round about me. How can I be afraid? The second reference is in Deuteronomy 33. and Moses' song of praise for God's majesty in Israel. Listen to this. It's found, if you want to jot it down, verse 27, 29 of Deuteronomy 33. Listen, let it sink in. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety the fountain of Jacob alone in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. What is this shield of faith? I'll tell you what it is. Faith is confidence in God. In who He is, His character. In what He says, His covenant promise. That is the shield of faith. It's not not just what we believe. It's how we believe. How we believe. I've mentioned previously, and others have mentioned it in their prayers, this verse to do with spiritual warfare. In 1 Peter 5, verse 9, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I heard one preacher say he's a toothless lion. (laughs) Well, I mean, we need not to be afraid of him then, eh? Toothless lion. No, he's not a toothless lion. Boy, has he got teeth. You want to see them. And we need to be very careful in what we say. We ought not to... Speak scathingly or sarcastically or humorously of the devil or demons. Angelic beings showed reverence and respect towards Satan. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful. But we need to know that though he goes about and he hates us and detests us and he wants to destroy us, what does Peter say? Whom resist steadfast in the faith. It. Faith. The faith. But it's not just the body of what we believe, but it's how we believe it. Are we standing on it? That's the victory that overcomes the world. Turn with me quickly to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Or sorry, 5. Chapter 5, I should say. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Does that sound tantalizingly attractive to you tonight? A man recently, John Eldridge it was, wrote a book, The Utter Relief of Holiness. That appeals to me. You want it, don't you? Sometimes you wonder how to get it. Listen. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Look down at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it means if we walk in fellowship with the Lord and are abiding in our new birth, we will not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. When? When we appropriate the victory of Calvary, when we stand steadfast in the faith, We adorn ourselves in the panoply of God, which is Jesus Christ. We wrap ourselves by faith in the greatness of our God, His character and His promises. The devil will not be able to touch you. That's mighty. What a statement. What a statement Paul gives us in Ephesians 6. Take the shield of faith and you will be able, will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. you'll you'll not only be able to ward them off, you'll be able to extinguish them. It's mighty, isn't it? And here's where I want to bring this together. Faith will overcome fear. Faith will overcome fear. What's your fear tonight? It could be one of a thousand things. I used to think faith and fear were mutually exclusive. I used to think it was like the cowboy film, you know, where they leveled up to one another down Main Street and one says to the other, this town isn't big enough for the both of us. You know that? I used to think that's the way faith and fear were in the heart, that they couldn't coexist. And that's wrong. I learned from my own experience recently that that's wrong. I've said that in the past. And here's how I know it's wrong, because I recently have had paralyzing fearful experiences but it has been in them that I have stepped out in faith. It's been in the midst of them that I have turned to the belief in God and what he says, and that has turned my fear to faith, my hell to hell. In the midst of it. Do you think Peter, when he was looking over the side of that boat, was thinking, oh, this is great, boys. Will do you see this? Ah, huh? woo! Do you think that's the way he was? I think he was totally inside, eaten up with fear and trepidation. But what did he do? He took the step of faith. Wherever you are tonight, wherever you are, don't try to deny your fear. Don't try and push it down and suppress it. Be real with it. But choose not to believe the lies of the enemy, the condemnation and accusation of Satan, but choose to believe God. Oh, I love that statement of the Apostle Paul in the shipwreck. they were throwing everything overboard. You remember? And it was going into skiffs in the middle of the ocean. But God spoke to him. God spoke to him and told him that if they all stayed in the boat, everyone would be saved. And he said, I believe God that it shall be as he told me. What faith? What's the evidence of that round? None. Nothing. Nothing in the material world, but the evidence was the title deed, the proof was the faith that God had given in his heart. Oh, first John, he's still there. Quick four. First John four verse eighteen. First John four eighteen There is no fear in love. Now this is not speaking of the fear of God, which is a reverence for God. We need to have the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. This is talking about a fear shaking in your boots, feeling condemned by God. But perfect love casts out fear. Do you have that perfect love tonight? The love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. That baptism of love. Fear involves torment. That's a description of some of you tonight, isn't it? And it certainly has been of me. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Look at verse 4, chapter 4. You are of God, little children. And have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Well, we got that shield tonight. Look at what it says. Take hold. Take hold. You know what that means? It's outside of you. It's outside of you. You haven't, yes, God dwells in you, but you've got to partake of this by faith and appropriate it. The shield is our sovereign God. And faith is our responsibility. I recommend to you, I don't know if it's on the bookstore, it probably isn't, Leonard Ravenhill's little book, Why Revival Tarries. Mighty, mighty little book. And I think it's in that book that he said this. One of these days, some simple soul is going to take up the book of God and believe it. And the rest of us will be left with red faces. Do you believe God? I think of Jim Elliot going to that virgin territory to share the gospel with the Oka Indian. And I'll never forget it as a young person seeing the slide of them, those missionaries that were slain for Jesus. They got off the plane, walked towards those heathen people who had never known the gospel, and they were slain. But I never forget seeing that slide of them standing around that old Hammond organ. And what they were singing was, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Let us pray. Our best defense is together. These Roman soldiers would often lock their shields together. I think they called it a tortoise formation or something like that. Armed forces still use it today, even our own police and riot situations. We need each other. We do. We need to bear one another's burdens and there's a struggle on here today and I tell you there's a, a a moral catastrophe on our doorstep. There is a moral apocalypse and we need to come together in the kingdom of God to take our stand and we need to have faith let's be personal tonight. Is there anyone who God has spoken to and you just want to acknowledge that and you want to bring your fears, your exposures, your your flammable areas that you know Satan has been capitalizing and you know you've been overcome in. Is there anyone here tonight that wants to know that freedom that only Christ can give? He's very evidently here by his Holy Spirit. Is there anyone who will say tonight, Tonight's my night. And I want to lay it all down at the foot of the cross. And you confess whatever needs to be confessed and repented of, of the Lord. It maybe is unbelief. It maybe is fear. It may be judging others for their sins when you have been giving in to your temptations. It's maybe been wrestling in the flesh against the things that you struggle with rather than in the spirit making rules and regulations when what will free you is relationship with Jesus. Is there anyone tonight who will just, where they're sitting, raise a hand to say, I want to be real with God and I want to lay it all down at the foot of the cross and ask for the help that I need. I don't have what it takes. Is there anyone? This where you're sitting, slip a hand up, eyes are closed and heads are bowed. This where you're sitting, you can respond to the Lord and we'll lead you in prayer and pray for you now. Is there anyone? God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. God bless. The Holy Spirit is brooding over us. He is the Holy Spirit who brooded over the chaos in the beginning and brought creation and he broods over us now to bring the new creation will you respond to him tonight is there anyone else let me lead you in prayer just come to the Lord and say Lord Jesus Christ I come to you and surrender all that I am and all that I have spirit, soul and body mind, emotion, will I surrender to you Lord Confess your sin to him. Take it on your lips and confess it. Confess your struggle. Confess it. Take it on your lips. And say, Lord, I repent of these sins. If you're not even converted tonight, it would be a good time. Come to the cross and ask the Lord to cleanse you in the precious blood. And ask him to save you. And be Lord of your life. Renounce Satan and all his works. Would you do that? Say, I renounce Satan and all his works. And ask the Father in heaven to fill you with the Holy Spirit. For you can't do this in your own. None of us can. We need the blessed Holy Spirit. Thank him for hearing your prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.